The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So today we're going to talk about leadership. And the first thing I want you to ask yourself is, have you ever noticed that some leaders just manage to consistently outperform everyone in their field, regardless of what field it is? And they seem to have this huge fan base with many people who would drop absolutely everything to be able to work for them. So ever wonder what it is that makes this group of leaders so special relative to the rest of us? What do they do that we don't do? And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So with me today is Sydney Finkelstein. Sydney is a professor of management and a director, the director of the Center for Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Um, Sid has published over 20 books and 80 articles and two in particular bestsellers. The first one, Why Smart Executives Fail, has been touted around the world as a fabulous read. I can also attest that it is. His latest book, Super Bosses, is the result of a 10-year project. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Sydney is listed on the Thinkers 50 and part of the Academy of Management, a columnist for the BBC, a consultant and speaker for major corporations around the world. So Sydney, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, great to be on with you, Wanda. All right. So I'm excited. Who are these super bosses and why would you call them that? Yeah. So a super boss is a leader that helps other people accomplish more than they ever thought possible. And the way you can tell is you look at an industry and you look at senior leaders in that industry, and um, when you start to study them, as I did, you start to discover that, in fact, many of them ended up working for the same person at some stage in their career, which is rather remarkable that one person could be that influential. And the name that I apply to those people that are these amazing talent spawners that have figured out how to, how to generate and regenerate talent on a continuous basis. That, that name is Superboss. So talent spawner. So give me an example of the kind of people that you studied. Yeah, sure. So uh, I looked at a lot of different uh, industries, and in every one of them I was, uh, I was able to quite easily find, uh, find that, uh, that talent spawner, that Superboss. Say in American fashion, it's Ralph Lauren. You look at the people that work for Ralph uh, from Tory Burch to Vera Wang to uh, Joseph Abboud and many others. Uh, in uh, hedge funds, it's Julian Robertson from Tiger Management and Tiger Cubs. In, um, in film and special effects, it's George Lucas, uh, obviously the legendary George Lucas. In uh, consumer packaged goods, it's Michael Miles, who is the longtime CEO at Kraft, whose protégés ended up becoming CEOs of more than a dozen leading, uh, leading companies. Uh, in advertising is Jay Shiat from Shiat Day. So 
So, you know, really interesting uh, people, some larger-than-life characters, some others might not know as well, but these are, these are the super bosses. So now, each of these performed incredibly well in their own right, but what distinguished them is not just the performance themselves, but the number of very talented people who come out working for them and come out from underneath them. Is that, I get that straight? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, they are all very, very successful. And, you know, look, 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 Wanda, it's not surprising. You surround yourself with great people. You help produce world-class talent. How could you not get better? How could you not be more successful yourself? Everybody says that teams win and you need great talent. The, the beauty of, of these leaders, of these super bosses, is they've figured out how to find, how to identify, and how to nurture and develop people that not only move on to great things in their own careers, but help you, them, you yourself as a leader, become much more effective, much more successful. Okay. So these are people who are going to then focus on surrounding themselves with brilliant talent in the fir- first place, not threatened by it, really develop and nurture that talent, and that's going to sp- spark everybody, including the leader, to be better. Great. I love it. So how would you go about studying these super bosses? Yeah, so uh, it was a long process. In fact, uh, it took from when I got this idea to when I uh, when the book actually came out some uh, uh, back in February 2016. Uh, it was 10 years, and it took, a, it took a lot of time. I was doing a lot of other things, uh, but nonetheless, it gives you an idea of the, of the intensity and the rigor of the research process. I interviewed hundreds of people, uh, wrote uh, dozens of, uh, of case studies and narratives about these, uh, about these leaders, uh, and many of the people I interviewed, some were super bosses, of course, but many were their protégés, their former employees, who had uh, tremendous stories. Uh, to uh, tell me about uh, about these people, so it was um, it was a lot of um, kind of digging into the details, talking to people that that knew what was going on. We did a lot of other stuff with respect to you know endless um, uh, secondary data that's available, company documents, um, books and reports, and other things uh, like that. But we really found that you know talking to people people that work for uh, for super bosses, they were. Uh, uh, they were excited, by the way, to talk to me. They loved the idea of sharing what they learned because they felt this, this connection to their boss. They, they owed so much to their boss, and they were delighted to do that. So it, was, uh, it wasn't a happenstance uh, process. It really was a long, uh, a long process. I call it actually a, um, in some cases it's quite clear, a genealogical study. It's, it's, and, and I'm referring to, of course, not the parents of successful leaders, but they're the people that work for them. And I would create these trees of talent, uh, looking, going back over their careers to try to figure out who they work for. And then you start to draw that all up and you keep seeing the same names come up time and time and time again. And, um, and, then, um, and then I asked some really interesting questions like, what happened? What was your boss like? What did you learn from, from that boss? What did you take with you as you moved on in your career? And all those things together start to put together a pretty fascinating picture. All right, I have to ask a specific question. So I know a particular leader at one time in his career, his team working for him would have described him in ways like you describe a super boss. They would have said fabulous things about him, and the group went on to achieve truly extraordinary results. But as he goes on in his career, I have to say it hasn't been as pretty of a picture since then. Did you ever see that, or did you, were you just so selective around people who have exceptional protégés throughout their career? 
Yeah, I think uh, that in most instances, they these are people that, while they may not have set out to uh, help other people get better, they ended up doing that, and at some point they began to realize, wow, I'm actually really good at that, and I'm proud. Even somebody like, like Larry Ellison from Oracle is a very tough, you know, very tough CEO, uh, legendary CEO. He's now the chairman of the company, of course, CEO and founder of Oracle. And even, even a guy like that, he felt really proud of so many of the protégés, so many of the people that, uh, that, worked, uh, that worked for him. Uh, so part of it is who I was looking at and what I was interested in. I think there are a lot of patterns that are out there, but I do want to say one thing that everyone should keep in mind, which is even though I'm talking about Ralph Lauren and you know, Larry Ellison, really legendary leaders in their industries, the reality is that there are super bosses in every organization, and there are, there are many. And how do I know that? I've done so many book signings already that people come up to me and say, could you sign the book to my boss? Because my boss is a super boss. Uh, she's exactly the type of person you've been talking about. And it's somebody I never heard of in a company I barely knew existed. And there, there you have it. They, 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 they are there. I think the problem in many organizations, frankly, is we don't even know about them. Companies do not spend time to try to identify who those super bosses are and, and, and learn from them and have them teach others. And in a sense, it's like you have, you have these undervalued assets in, in an organization that, that if you look at almost any other type of asset, and you say, wow, it's so powerful, it's so important, it does so many good things, and, and we're just letting it sit there. In the case of super bosses, that's what's going on in many organizations. Sounds powerful. Okay, so tell me then what is it that really the super bosses do that others don't do? So I know that they focus on the protégés. I know they focus on helping get other people better. Is it a mindset difference? Is it a series of behaviors or both? Yeah, it, well, it's both. They, they really do have a different mindset, and the mindset is that they, they look at people as, as opportunities, that everyone they meet, anywhere they go, they're always on the lookout for talent. I call them talent spotters, actually, talent scouts, which is uh, something you can teach anyone that works with you or for you as well. Wherever they're, on, uh, wherever they're out, uh, uh, out and about in meetings or just casually or informally, their, their antennas are up looking for great talent. I mean, I'll tell you uh, a famous story I heard about through my research about Ralph Lauren, who was in, uh, in a restaurant in New York City having dinner with his family, and he's uh, over the course of the dinner, he strikes up a conversation with a woman that is sitting with other people next to him at another table. Didn't know who the woman was, but it turns out she was dressed in a really cool way, and it caught his attention. And uh, as you might expect, it would. It's Ralph Lauren. And he, um, he's talking to her on and off, and then you know, Ralph and his family get up to leave uh, from dinner. It's over, and before uh, he leaves, he walks over to her, and he gives her his, his business card. And she didn't know who it was, and he never said, you know, I'm Ralph Lauren. They were just talking. And she looks down at the business card, and it says Ralph Lauren, and he says to her, if you have a chance, could you come in the office tomorrow? I'd like to offer you a job. Can you imagine a thing like that? I mean, she looks down, and she says, holy cow, Ralph Lauren's going to offer me a job. And she ended up getting hired and, and staying there for five years and actually being a key member of the design team. So it's, it, it's a, it sounds like a crazy story, but yet it's one of the hallmarks of, Every one of the super bosses that I studied and that I talked to, they, they just look, they're always looking for talent. And that's one of the ways that I think they are different from most other leaders, most other bosses out there. Okay. 
So they were always looking for talent. I love this idea that everywhere you go, every conversation, you're looking for someone that you say, that person has sparked something in me. What other ways distinguish them? Anything else? Well, there's, there, there are a lot of things, uh, including, uh, by the way, on the talent, on, on identifying talents, not just that they're talent scouts, but they're, uh, they, they look for unusual talent. And, and by that, I mean they, they look for people that maybe others haven't paid attention to, diamonds in the rough, if you will. Another one of my um, my super bosses is Bill Walsh, who's a famous San Francisco 49er football coach, one of the most successful uh, coaches uh, ever. And uh, so many of his uh, assistant coaches ended up becoming head coaches throughout the uh, NFL. Uh, his track record is, is, is just enormous in terms of developing talent. And what happened in his case, when I talk about, uh, quote, unusual talent, he noticed that back in the... Um, in the 70s and into the into the 80s, uh, there were uh, there was a tremendous talent pool of ex NFL players that had uh, had the brain power, had the experience, uh, had the aptitude, the interest in being NFL uh, coaches, but they had never been given that opportunity. And he said, "Well, why wouldn't I want to go out of my way to create that opportunity? Because these are people that could really help me." And it turns out that this is the reason why even today you have any African-American head coaches in the NFL. It's Bill Walsh that saw that opportunity and said, this is an untapped talent pool. And he created, uh, he selected and he created a program and activities to identify uh, ex-NFL players um, and, and, and helped accelerate their careers. So there's so many things they do that it's just, you know, you ask, is it, a, is it behavior, is it mindset? It's a big part that's just the mindset here. Uh, that says, let's just think differently about this. Let's not just do what we always do and have always done in the past. And, and that's really one of the hallmarks of, of super bosses. It's true for how they identify talent, and it's very much true in how they manage day-to-day their, the people in their team. I'd like to say that they, they unleash the creativity of the people in their team. They expect people that work for them to have stuff to say, have something new to add all the time, not as you know, an occasional uh, an occasional thing, but it's part of your, your job description to keep coming up with new ideas. They're not all going to be winners. We know that. But if you don't unleash that creativity, then you know you're not going to have any chance to really get the best out of people. And you could imagine what it's like to work for somebody who wants to know what you think, somebody who's so successful in the first place and wants to know what you think and, and wants those great ideas. And if you come up with a great idea, and you know it's not that they just accept that idea. You have to engage in a real debate and a discussion to win the day, but if you can do that, they are, they are never more delighted than when they learn something new that they didn't know that they could use from people around them. That's different also. It does strike me as a lot of different. So you're not going to be worried about the bosses stealing your idea or any of those kind of classic stuff that we hear, um, but yeah. what do they do? I mean, any secrets on how you encourage people to come up with a new idea every day or regularly without feeling that they're on the spot? Yeah, they, uh, they, they do this, super bosses do this as a natural course of, of, of their business. And, and part of that is that they motivate and energize people. The people who work for them are really excited. I mean, many of the uh, interviews that I, that I did, a number of people said something like, to paraphrase, uh, were, I, I, I was listening to, to Bill Sanders, who's a big real estate guy. I was listening to Ralph Lauren talk about his vision for the company and what he wanted to do. And I felt like I, it was like a train leaving the station. I had to get on. And if I didn't get on that train, I would, I would regret it for the rest of my life. 
I mean, it's that, that powerful of an energy, uh, of a vision, which, again, is a, is a different thing than most bosses, most leaders do. Most people think about vision as what the CEO has to do. And, yes, the CEO has to do it, but every manager should be able to craft a vision that is compelling, that is energizing, that is exciting for the people in their team. And so they're so into it. They want to be part of it. They have an opportunity to have an impact. And as a result, it's, it's not that big a leap to say, you know, I want to do everything I can to make this work because I have this connection and I see the value of what we're doing and I believe in it. It's, it's, it's just a whole different way of thinking about things. Okay. So, and is part of the creating the vision a bit of their personality, um, charisma, we often say, or is it just their success and track record and compelling view of what the world could provide? Yeah, well, you got a little bit of, you got a little bit of both, but to be fair, not every one of the super bosses are, are a Ralph Lauren with, who's a charismatic character. There were, you know, even George Lucas, as famous as he is, was, uh, was quite reticent, was almost shy, as he was described by a number of people. When he walked in the room, he was famous, but he didn't fill up the room and dominate the room in the way that some other folks do. So it's not just, uh, it's not just charisma. It is, it is a belief that they, they really want to have an impact. Uh, they really want to change how people think uh, about, about whatever their career is, whatever their business is. Ralph Lauren had a, had a vision to, to create a, a t- type of clothes and a style of clothes that would be part of a um, uh, part of a lifestyle, how people would live their life, and he had these visions in his head about how to do that, and and he shared that. So it's very it's very concrete. I mean, I could tell you if you want if you want to create a vision for your team, I could tell you three things right now that you should do. No, no, no matter who no matter who you are, no, number one, think think hard about what is really important and exciting and energizing to people. Showing up and getting paid for the job is is table stakes. That's the way the world works. That's not enough to say, I'm going to give you everything I've got and then, and then some. So start, start with that and recognize you've got to add something. It's your job as a manager to add, add something. Uh, n- number two, respect people. Give people a position or a place where what they say and what they do actually means something, that, it's, that, it's, that they can have a, a potential impact because that is so, so motivational. And I think step number three is you better be authentic you better communicate it effectively. You better really believe it yourself. And I think if you can do those, if you can do those things, you're you're more than halfway towards creating a powerful vision, no matter who you are or what you do in any organization. All right, so Sydney, we're going to take a break, but let me just try to get a summary here of what we said. So, super bosses are people who really help others accomplish more than they ever thought was possible. Um, it, they're talent spawners, and the things that really distinguish them are how they go about spotting talent. It's something they're looking for every single day in every interaction, and find it and then grab it. And they look for unusual talent, diamonds in the rough, a different way than other people see that particular industry. And they manage day-to-day in a way that unleashes creativity. Um, They have a vision, a compelling sense of what it is we could do and why we should do it and how it's different and how it will change the world. Not necessarily charismatic, but a compelling vision that people can grab onto. And they accordingly draw great talent to them. And as we know, if you're working on a team that's got great talent, you're even more likely to come on board. Did I do a fair summary, Sidney? Uh, you did an, ex- an excellent summary, Wanda. All right, great. We're going to take a break. With me today is Sidney Finkelstein. He's the director for the Center of Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College and the author of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And we'll be right back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sydney Finkelstein. Cindy is the director for the Center of Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College and the author of many books and articles, but in particular, a longstanding bestseller, Why Smart Executives Fail, and more importantly, a very recent book called Superbosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And it's the result of a 10-year project studying a broad range of leaders who were touted by their protégés as just being amazing bosses. We've been talking about what distinguishes those bosses, and one of the things we've been talking about is their ability to identify talent, unusual talent, diamonds in the rough, and draw that talent in with a compelling sense of vision. So, Cindy, what I want to do at this point is to turn to the component about nurturing talent. So what is it that super bosses do to develop? You know, the thing that I found so remarkable about what they do is uh, they have resurrected what I would say was the dominant way in which people would learn their craft, their trade, their ideas uh, for, for centuries. And, and that, of course, is the apprenticeship approach. Uh, and, you know, look at, go back to Leonardo da Vinci. He started in the workshop of Verrocchio back in, uh, in Renaissance Italy. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. And, uh, Today, where, where have those apprenticeships gone? There are some uh, careers where there's a little bit of that, perhaps in, you know, in music or you know, some of the trades. But we're talking about management. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about being a, a great boss. And uh, there really isn't much there. And the, and the beauty of what super bosses have done is they've, they've really resurrected what, what, are, what are kind of the, the heart and soul of an apprenticeship approach. And there are uh, three or four elements to that. The, the first is around opportunity. And... What super bosses do is they create huge opportunities for people. They're unafraid to delegate and delegate big. They never feel this kind of sense of insecurity that if they give somebody a bigger job, they might outshine them in some, in some way. They, they, they'd like that to happen because they feel so strongly about what they're doing. So create big opportunities, delegate big, and at the same time, and this is uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but what, what super bosses do is that they will also roll up their sleeves and work hand-in-hand together with people on their team at different times to help them 
to teach them, to coach them, to push them, to raise the bar on them. And um, a lot of people say, well, how, do you, how, do you, how can you do that? How can you delegate really big and at the same time be such a hands-on manager? And, and, you know, they get close to that word that nobody, everybody says you don't want to be, you don't want to be as a leader, which is, of course, micromanagement, micromanager. You don't want to be a micromanager, and, and they're not, uh, but they get close. Uh, they don't just delegate and forget. And I think it's actually really important because a, um, a boss, a leader, somebody who's got years of experience has so much to give, so much to offer, so much to teach, and, uh, and, and that's, what, that's what they do. So, for example, there's, uh, and it takes a lot of, um, a lot of forms, uh, there's the example of um, the uh, early 30s um, MBA uh, alum uh, who went, uh, went to work for the CFO of a large uh, company, and she prepared all the slide deck and everything else for a, for a board meeting. And she's walking uh, with the CFO into the board meeting. She's carrying the, you know, the, uh, the laptop and all the materials. And uh, as they're walking uh, closer to the room, the CFO turns to her and says, you know, you've done such a great job preparing this. I want you to actually uh, present some of this uh, to the board. And she had about a 20-second notice before she'd get to the, uh, get to the boardroom. Now, that's got to be a little scary thing, but this CFO knew that she could do it, that the CFO knew that, she was, that he was going to be there next to her if, if she faltered and, and gave her that incredible opportunity. And she did it, and when she described it to me in one of my interviews, she said, you know, it, it's like it changed my life. I felt like there's nothing I couldn't do at that point. If super bosses are in the business of producing super talent, one of the great ways to do that is to instill this sense of confidence this um, this accomplishment that people that people get when they when they do great things, and I'm sure that there are listeners that are thinking, you know, I, I had somebody like that. Sometimes it's a teacher, by the way, not just the boss, but uh, I had somebody like that, and and they gave me that opportunity, and people are so so appreciative of that, and it creates a sense of loyalty as well. So, what what does it mean to be an apprentice or resurrect the the apprenticeship approach? There are a few things, but I think it starts with creating this big opportunity being hands-on at the same time, and, and opening doors that would not otherwise have been, have been, have been opened up uh, for that person. So, so many people that I talk to about delegating are so worried that if I delegate, not that somebody else is going to get credit for it, but that there's going to be a mistake. Hmm. So how do super bosses deal with that nervousness about, so what if you make a mistake, so what if there's an error? Yeah, well, there's no question that if you uh, if you're delegating someone else, there is a risk that they might not do it identically to you or do it perfectly. But of course, they may also do it better than you. Let's not forget that. And take that to the, to its logical extreme. If you really don't trust people on your team and you have to do a lot of their work, that's when you do become a micromanager. And number one, number two, that's when you will get burned out. You just can't do it. Work is you know people have so much to do in their jobs already. If you have to start to do what, what, your, what your team members uh, need to do, and you're afraid to really delegate to them, you're, you're going to go crazy. You're going to be working around the clock. You're going to get burned out. You're going to resent it. And I, I, I see this a lot in my own coaching work. I find, I find people, it's exactly what you're, what, you're, what you're bringing up, Wanda, which is they, they're, they're afraid to delegate, and it boils down to a lack of trust. That they just don't trust the people on their team. And if you really don't have the right people on your team, if you don't trust them because it's 
because you're right that you should trust them, then you have to think about making some changes to the team. More often than not, it's not that. It's that, it's that fear of letting go a little bit. And I have to say, when, when it comes to super bosses, they're, they, they're, they're more fearless than your, than your typical manager. I will say that. Uh, they are risk takers. They, um, as we've said, unleash creativity and value creativity in and of itself, which involves a degree of risk, of, of course, because you, when you come up with new things, you're not always going to be right. So uh, it's, to me, it's, uh, you know, maybe this is going to sound a little tough, but it's, it's time to be a grown-up manager and stop worrying about that. Uh, do, do your job, delegate big. If they can't produce, if they can't perform, and you're not forgetting about them, remember, you're coaching them, you're being there, you're observing. But if they can't do it, you've got to make some changes. If they can do it, you have, you've gotten yourself a, a team member and, and friend for life. Uh, that's a much better model to me. I love that phrase, be a grown-up manager. I can imagine a super boss who says, I'm not wasting my time with average talent. I'm going for phenomenal talent. Even if they're a little diamond in the rough, a little awkward, a little unusual, I still see the potential. I believe in them. And if it goes hand in hand with you are working with them side by side, not doing it for them, but working side by side with them, teaching and coaching, you know then when they're ready to take that next big opportunity or take over the speech or whatever the case may be. And then open doors, just give them the opportunity in a big way. I can see how all of those sort of fit together, not be afraid of the risks. Yeah, they, they, they really do. And Remember, you, you touched on something as well that I think is important and I would say is part of the apprenticeship approach, which is they, they're, they're doing their homework. They really know who's on their team. They know who's good. They know what their potential is. So what might sound like a risk to some person to delegate for a super boss, I said earlier, well, they don't, they, 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 they're more comfortable with risk. There's another thing to say about it, which is they don't see the same level of risk that maybe somebody else does because they know their team so well. And, and that's because they customize how they work with team members. They, they adjust, they adapt to people in their team, which is really kind of an interesting statement because most people say, well, I have to adapt or adjust to my boss. And I think that's actually not the way to be an effective boss. I think there's no other part of, say, marketing or sales or any customer-facing part of, part of an organization or a business where the customer has to adapt to you as a company. It's, very, it's, it's rare. But in fact, when we talk about managing people, we, we, we often say, you know, people in the team, you've got to figure out your boss. You've got you to do what your boss wants, wants to do. But the best bosses are actually going to do the opposite. They are gonna, they're going to customize what they do. They're going to adjust and adapt. They're going to figure out the right opportunities for people that will help those, each, each person move forward in their career. It's not the same for everyone. And they'll, uh, they'll know how hands-on they have to be. May I give you a, um, a, another example from one of, my, uh, one of my interviews? I mentioned Julian Robertson, the hedge fund, the, uh, hedge fund guru who uh, uh, created Robertson uh, Tiger Management and had many, uh, many protégés become extremely successful in the hedge fund industry. And I, I interviewed one of those protégés. His name is Chase Coleman, and he runs a very big uh, multi-billion-dollar fund today. But when he was 25 years old, uh, Julian Robertson, his boss, saw some potential in him, so thought, the, thought the kid was great, and gave him $25 million to invest at, in, in his own hedge fund. And, um, and Chase Coleman's pretty energized by that, needless to say. And it takes him a little bit of time, but, but after, after some time, he makes a couple of trades that uh, were extremely successful, made a lot of money 
and he's expecting his boss, Julian Robertson, to come by and, you know, give him a high five and a bear hug and go out for, you know, big fancy dinner and do the whole hedge fund thing with a thousand dollar bottles of wine and the rest. But of course, Julian Robertson, while he's in the office, doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't even acknowledge him for four days. Four days, the fourth day after these big trades cleared, Julian Robertson comes by to uh, chase and he doesn't really say much to him, but he looks at him and he nods his head up and down and makes eye contact and really acknowledges that, uh, you know, you did, you did well. But he doesn't even say that. He just looks at him. You did well and then turns around and, and walks away. And that, that's the whole thing. And I asked Chase Coleman, you know, the protege, what did he think about that? And Chase said, you know, he was, he was really taken aback. He was upset because he thought his boss would, you know, really, you know, put him up on a pedestal for hitting it out of the park so soon in his career. And, in fact, he did very little like that. And Chase Coleman says to me, you know, I decided right then and there that I would show him. I would show him that this trade that made millions of dollars is nothing compared to the trade that I'm going to do. And I'm going to be unbelievably successful. So I'm going to make so much money for him that he's going to come in his hands and knees to thank me. Imagine that. You know, if you want to motivate this kid... It seems like Julian Robertson figured it out because he, he was just on fire to demonstrate to his boss how good he was. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody else would have had the hand around the shoulder and, uh, and, 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 you know, more support. But this was someone, Chase Coleman, that had the fire in his belly that needed to be the center of attention, needed to be successful, and he was so good, he needed to have that type of motivation. That's a great example, I think, of, of customizing how you interact with people. And super bosses will do that. Fabulous. I love this. People always say to me, you know, how do I get someone else to adapt? And I say, always say, you don't. You change. You adapt. You adjust. And I love that notion that even down to how you acknowledge somebody's success is really dependent on what it is that person's about and more importantly, what they need going forward. So even in that moment, he's using it as a development opportunity. Yeah, by, by the way, all, uh, all parents listening, I think, uh, are connecting right away. Every kid is different. Well, it's true when you're, when you're a manager as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And if we try to treat them all the same, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> okay, so talk to me a minute about how they build teams. Is there anything unique about what super bosses do to build teams? That, well, there is. They, um, uh, they, they focus a lot of their attention on, on teams, as you would, uh, you would guess, and they do a couple of things. Number one, they, because they're, they're finding the diamonds in the rough and the unusual talent, they're putting together teams of really talented people and teams that, uh, of people that often really feel like, wow, this is, this is an amazing opportunity I've been given. I, I'm going to make the most of it. So, so you've, you've got the right type of people sitting around the table, so to speak. Uh, but the other thing that they do that I, I really like is uh, they, uh, they create an environment where people are both team members to be successful, are both collaborating with each other, working in a, quote, team together, but at the same time, and again, here's another counterintuitive thing, they create an environment where to really be successful, you need to compete with your team members. The same people you're collaborating with, you're competing. And there's, there are a lot of, lot of stories and examples I found uh, through my research about, about this, but I'll give you the simplest of them all. Everyone knows the Beatles, everyone knows Lennon and McCartney, the genius uh, um, uh, songwriting uh, team behind the Beatles. Well, if John Lennon wrote a great song, Paul McCartney wanted to outdo him, wanted to, ha- wanted to write a better song. If Paul McCartney wrote a great, a great song, 
Lenin said, I'm, I'm going to do better. They had that internal competition between them, but yet in virtually every song that they created, it was a collaboration. It wasn't that one of them, in most cases, that one of them wrote the song, the lyrics, the melody from beginning to the end that never, and was never adjusted or improved by the other person. Typically, one would go to the other and say, I've got the melody, I've got the front end, I've got the back end, I kind of know what I'm doing, but it's missing the middle eight, it's missing this, missing that, and the other person in that partnership would actually help them do that. Now, that's, that, that, that's a pretty famous story, pretty, pretty classic story, but it shows you how you can create this, this environment of collaborating and competing and that you can benefit dramatically because you, you, can, you can help each person get better by doing that. And that's what super bosses are, are really doing when it comes to building teams. Fabulous. Um, we don't talk about this in much of the management literature. When we describe teams, we talk about everybody loves each other and there's this great collaborative environment and play off of each other. But it hasn't been my experience either in looking at really top-performing teams. There's something about being on this dynamic, exciting team where you want to give it your best, which means ultimately I am competing a little bit with somebody else across the table to be just that bit better than they are. And that sparks everyone, so long as the competitiveness doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, well, that, that's right. You've got to be careful about that. But uh, what's the opposite of competition? Um, maybe complacency. Well, no, nobody's going to say we want complacency. So if you think about it, if you can be on one end a complacent manager where people do what they do, and on the other end create this competitive situation where people really are trying to, get, trying to uh, improve and get better and, and win. And so you want to be somewhere in between. And as you say, you don't want to be extreme competition because I think that, that can create some bad, bad effects. But this is, this is again, what, what we're talking about. They, they have that competition, but it's balanced with this, this collaboration, this collaborative uh, uh, sense that is required uh, that you need to get good at that to be successful in your organization, your team. So both, both are there. And I think that keeps this, the, uh, the negative, uh, um, potential negative consequences of extreme competition. It keeps it under control. I love this. You know, Sydney, as I look across this entire discussion about um, super bosses, it strikes me that they're really good at balancing two opposing opposites on many occasions. So one is that I want just enough competition among the team members to keep us all on our edge, but good collaboration in combinations. Now, let's say one or the other get out of the hand. I want to give you a big opportunity. I want to delegate big, but at the same time, I want to be there hands-on with you, work hand by side-by-side, I guess I should say, to teach and to coach you so I'm not leaving you on your own. Um, I want to open doors for you, but I'm not going to open too many, too big doors that you're going to fail along the way a little bit, but not too big. It just strikes me as if there's a lot of polar opposites that they do a really good job of balancing. It's a great way to uh, look at it, and I, 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 agree, uh, I agree completely. They, they do that, and, and that's why, you know, you, you look at the world of uh, leadership development, management development, HR, and we keep going back to the same simple solutions and methods, and you should do this, you should do that, but actually, maybe it's time we, we, we recognize the, the, the nuance and the complexity that super bosses bring to the table, where, in fact, you do best by having this... Uh, uh, having this balance, uh, and, and by the way, don't forget 
the, the vision and the creativity side, both of those are also kind of a balance because super bosses have this powerful vision that they really believe in. They're not about to change that vision. So that sounds pretty, you know, uncompromising. But at the same time, they want every idea they can get. They want to hear what you think. They want to unleash your creativity. So they do it even in that, in that, uh, in that area as well. So it is a different way to think about leadership. Strikes me as, uh, and I think you're right, the word is nuanced. It, it's what we know in some ways, but the holding these polar opposites and really doing it with a set of people, the set of personalities, the what each individual needs at that moment in time, when it might be inconsistent across the team, is a very subtle, nuanced way of getting fabulous results. Interesting. Good things to think about and also very interesting things to think from of how we develop super bosses coming out of this one. All right, we're going to take a break again. With me today is Sydney Finkelstein. Sydney is a professor of management and the director of the Center for Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. The book we've been talking about is Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sydney Finkelstein, who is a director for the Center of Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, the author of many books and articles. The one we've been talking about particularly is Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. Um, Sid is listed as the Thinkers 50. He's part of the um, Academy of Management as a fellow, a columnist for BBC, a consultant and speaker for major corporations around the world. Fun talking to him. So Super Bosses, people who produce great talent. They are talent spawners. They're constantly on the lookout for talent. People love working for them. They love the vision, the idea that creating something new. And as we were just saying, they hold some polar opposites in quite interesting tension. And I'm just going to highlight two of those. One is this notion that I have he, the super boss has a vision of what we should be accomplishing, could be accomplishing, and is non-negotiable. But at the same time, they're willing to unleash as much creativity as they can get, ideas around their team not threatened by that in the least. And on the other hand, they're really good at giving people delegation, pushing them hard, taking big delegation, and at the same time quite willing to roll up their sleeves and work side by side, particularly as teacher and master coach. Um, to name just a few of them. So, Sid, I want to go backwards in your career and talk about your first book, which is Why Smart Executives Fail. So why do smart executives fail? And just as a question, is that why super bosses succeed? Are the two mm-hmm. connected? Yeah, interesting. So, so uh, Why Smart Executives Fail is another big project with uh, literally, again, hundreds of interviews of uh, of CEOs, of leaders, of managers, of board members, and there are a lot of answers to the question why they fail. But if I were to pinpoint maybe the uh, the, the central one, it is that um, leaders of organizations sometimes fall prey to the same types of personal um, uh, biases and and narrow mindedness and flaws that all of us uh, all of us have at various times. But yet, but but when you're running a, a company, when you have a big responsibility in any organization, the price you pay for, uh, for example, for uh, sticking your head in the sand and not adapting to change, or pretending that things are better than they really than they really are, or not listening to any feedback, or believing you know more than everybody else, uh, or or um, allowing yourself to become more powerful than others and and shutting out other points of view, all these types of things that. Occasionally, you know, all of us might do one or more of those things in, in a bad day or what have you. You can't do that. You can't get away with that in, in a complex organization where there's constant competitive battles, there's constant challenges, and that's really, that's really why this, uh, this has, it's not about, you know, with the title, why smart executives fail. It's not about intelligence. Every one of these leaders were, were certainly smart, smart enough and then, then some. It's really, it really gets down to human nature and, and falling into these traps and not recognizing that they're falling into the traps so that they keep going down, uh, down that same rabbit hole deeper and deeper and deeper and not recognizing that, in fact, they're doing a, th- a lot of things that are wrong, uh, but they think they're doing the right thing. And that's what happens. 
Okay. So it does strike me that some of these are completely mitigated by super bosses. And let me say why I say that. Not adapting to change, not taking feedback, being convinced that you're the only one with the answer, shutting people out. You just described super bosses who do the opposite of that because they surround themselves with incredibly bright people and try to unleash as much of that creativity as they can, which I'm presuming means that the super boss is always going to be a little bit challenged of their own opinion. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, there's a lot that sewer bosses do that will help a tremendous amount when it comes to, uh, uh, comes to the reasons why smart executives fail. Uh, and, and there's one place where I actually, in doing this research, I came across something that's quite interesting, a bit of a challenge, which was, you know, some of these, some of the super bosses, the Ralph Lauren's of the world, Larry Ellison's of the world, they're, they're not exactly shrinking violets. They have big egos. They're very successful. And, that, it turns out that a lot of the why smart executives fail, CEOs and, and executives, were very successful before they fell. And I, and I came up to, to, to that realization. I said, well, what's different? Why, why are these people that I'm calling super bosses so successful and these other ones are failures? And it boiled down to a fundamental thing, which is that the, the super bosses recognized that to win, they needed to have the world's best people around them, and they needed to find them, and they needed to help them get better. The Why Smart Executives Fail leaders looked at people that were around them as people to be used, to be exploited, to be blamed if things didn't work. They didn't really think they needed anyone when you get right down to it. And that, that, that's, that's a mindset difference that was so fundamentally different, I think, that also I think is interesting to point out in, the, in, in kind of how, how these people thought and thought differently. I love that. So super bosses are trying to surround themselves with the best talent they can find and knowing that they need people. And the trap that falls into where smart executives fail is when they believe they don't actually need anyone else, as in I have all the answers. My view is right. And I can see how that shuts you down to change and to feedback and shutting other people out makes a ton of sense to me. All right, so Sid, in your vast experience, both in this research, in your classroom work at Dartmouth, in the prior work on smart, why smart executives fail, if you could hit your five, five things or seven things, I'll give you a little leeway on the number, what's the most important thing to remember to be a great leader? I, uh, I, I might have more than five or seven, but I'll narrow it down to what I think are uh, the absolute keys. And, 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 there's some, and, and there's some of the themes that, have come out of both uh, both of these books and other work that I've done that we've been talking about as well. So uh, I'd say num- number one, and this is not number one as in the most important, but it's in the short list, is the the necessity of being ad- adaptable, uh, open-minded, um, agile. You use the word versatile as well. Whatever way you want to you want to call it, the idea of of uh, facing up to the world that's around you the way that it really is and making adjustments and, and adapting it to, to what's going on around you in real time. It's recognizing that mistakes will happen, but a mistake in and of itself is not the end of the world. It's what you do about that. And that's really a big, uh, a big differentiator. So uh, I, I would put that as, as, uh, as one, uh, one critical uh, point. I think a, a second one is, uh, is around accountability. Great leaders instill a sense of accountability into all of their people that are around them. Of course, super bosses do that all the time from a lot of the uh, things that we've talked about around, around vision, around creativity, um, around hand being, working, working together hands, uh, hands on. So I think accountability is a big one. I would say, um, 
the ability to, to help other people get better, kind of the super boss, the beauty of the super boss idea, which is, uh, which, which, which is uh, creating leaders. Great leaders create and help create other, uh, other great leaders, and I think that's something that, uh, uh, I think that's something that happens and is a big differentiator when it comes to great, um, when it comes to great leaders. Uh, I'd, uh, I think I'd also uh, add maybe, and this may even be the first one, who knows, but self-awareness. You know, self-awareness is the idea that you, you, you're alert as much as you can to how you think, how you behave, what your biases might be, and, uh, and, and you're trying to uh, recognize your own limitations. There's uh, such a big um, movement over the last uh, number of years to uh, mindfulness. Uh, a lot of people have talked about mindfulness and, and uh, getting in touch with yourself and while uh, all movements like this tend to get hyped a little bit, this is certainly one that is very much in line with this idea of self-awareness. And I, I, and I see it myself. When I'm working with uh, CEOs or, or any senior executive, the ones that are more self-aware, you can tell almost right away because they, they don't think they have all the answers. They recognize that, they, that there are things that they need to learn. They're open-minded. They're, there are all these other things that I think are so, uh, are so critical. So I would say... Um, I would say self-awareness, and then maybe I'll, uh, I'll say the last one uh, that I'll mention, so we will be at five, is the right balance between, and this gets to the balance point from earlier, uh, the balance between confidence and humility. I think both are required. It's, uh, you gotta be con- there's, no one, there's no one I've ever met who's successful who is not very confident because there's always a lot of people that are, there are a lot of naysayers out there. People say you can't do it, and all of us you know, have encountered people like that, and we've had to get through it. You've got you to gotta be confident. But if you have too much confidence, I think you can go down the path of, of arrogance and, um, and, and thinking you've got all the answers again. And so humility is a powerful thing. I also would say if you're humble all the time, then you're, not, then, then you're actually not going to be as successful as you otherwise could because, or as effective as a, of a leader. Humility is a great thing, but I think you have to be able to push the envelope sometimes. You've got you to pick your spots, and you have to, you have, to have that, that kind of internal uh, confidence. In some ways, the most, the most confident people of them all are the ones that don't have to show off, that are able to make room for other people, that have that confidence but don't, that, but don't have that insecurity. And that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm getting at here with this fifth point on, on humility and the balance between humility and, and confidence. So that, 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 that would be my set, I think. Fabulous set. I love this notion of the versatility, the ability to look at the world the way it is and to know that mistakes are not going to be the end of the world. And the second one is looking at accountability and how do I both balance that vision thing and the hands-on thing. The third one, helping other people get better, and that's just as a mindset that I'm constantly driving to help other people be better and better and better. A good awareness of myself, followed by a balance between this confidence and humility. So with me today is Sid Finkelstein, who's the director of the Center for Leadership at the Talk College of Business at Dartmouth College. The book we've been talking about is Super Vosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. Sid's other book that's really, really well received is Why Smart Executives Fail, and we've just been talking about that one. And if that isn't enough, you can find a number of articles, particularly in his column for the BBC. So Sid, thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Wanda.
And that's it for today. Join us next week for another installment on Out of the Comfort Zone. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.